You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And the people complained in the hearing of Yahweh about their misfortunes. And when Yahweh heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to Yahweh, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of Yahweh burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of Yahweh blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to Yahweh, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth, that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom, as a nurse carries a nursing child, to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. And bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you, and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of Yahweh, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore Yahweh will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils, and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected Yahweh, who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am number six hundred thousand on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat, that they may eat a whole month? Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them, 
and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And Yahweh said to Moses, Is Yahweh's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of Yahweh, and he gathered seventy men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the seventy elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all Yahweh's people were prophets, that Yahweh would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Then a wind from Yahweh sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day, and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against the people, and Yahweh struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 627 of this podcast. That was Numbers chapter 11 and some pretty intense stuff. Let's be honest, that is intense. Who knew that complaining is such a serious thing to God? And yet it is. It actually is. We think complaining is no big deal. Not no big deal to God, particularly when the complaining is in full knowledge of how God has provided, how good he has been, how he has protected. When the complaining is actually an accusation against God, God takes that very, very seriously, deadly serious. And this might surprise the gentle and lowly crowd. It might surprise the Jesus is a friend of mine crowd, it might surprise the VeggieTales theology folks to know that God gets angry and his wrath burns hot. He's slow to anger, but he does at a certain point get angry at unrighteousness and the cup of his wrath is poured out at a certain point. And when it is poured out, it is a 
fearful, terrifying thing to behold. Here we have it in Numbers 11, the people complaining about how it would have been better if they would have just stayed in Egypt because there they had such an abundance of food and a variety of food, not just an abundance, and a variety, and it was inexpensive. Now, never mind that the manna, which God is supernaturally blessing them with, is free. The only cost is you need to obey God. You're dependent, you're dependent on God. God wants you to serve him. You're his people now. You're his possession. He owns this people. He claims this people. They are his people. He is their God. That's the way it's going to work. But they're not having to pay some inflated cost. It's a flat cost. It's a flat fee. They have everything that they need for their daily bread, which we should think of as not having gone away, really. Jesus, when he teaches the disciples how to pray, he says, give us this day our daily bread. So it is appropriate for us as Christians to pray and ask God for our daily bread and for us to see our daily bread as coming from him, not just in a spiritual sense, in an actual material, physical sense. There's quite a lot written about this in the New Testament, how we shouldn't, if we see our brother in need, Say, be warmed and filled, or I'll pray for you. When Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, the man who was a good neighbor to the one who had been beaten and left for dead and robbed on the highway, the one who was a good neighbor was the Samaritan who stopped. He was on his way somewhere, clearly, and he saw this guy who had been the victim of violent crime. He stopped and took care of him and made all of the provisions for this guy to be nursed back to health. So what God wants from us is not just to be spiritual in this immaterial sort of a way, but to be spiritual in the way that we relate to our daily bread, in the way that we relate to the daily bread that one another needs. If we see the least of these hungry and feed them in Jesus' name, We've done it to Jesus. If we see them naked and we clothe them, we've done it to Jesus. The least of these being those who have no ability to pay back. This is not trading of favors. Hey, you owe me one. No, no. This is, there is nothing you can give me. I will never get this back from you. I will only get a reward from God. If that's our motivation, then that pleases God. But so also the inverse is, if God is giving to us, our sustenance, our provision. And all we can think to do is grumble and complain because, well, now I want something else. Then there's a discipline that we should expect to receive. We should anticipate being corrected if we're fortunate. <laughs> that's, the, that's the good option. Or we should expect worst case scenario that God just leaves us to our own devices. That's the worst case Best case is that he corrects us when we are complaining and grumbling against him. Even better still would be that we wouldn't grumble and complain against him. But worst case is he leaves us to our own devices until the cup of his wrath is full and then it's poured out on us. And we see some of that in Numbers chapter 11. The people complain and it says, the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And then we scroll on down And we see God 
giving them quail and saying, actually, not just are you going to have meat for a couple of days, I'm going to give you so much quail, it's going to be coming out of your nose, which you and I, we recognize that moment that sometimes we ourselves will get to where we're just at wit's end, we're totally frustrated. And of course, this is not to be taken literally that the quail is literally going to be coming out of their nose, except it might be, come to think of it, if a plague comes on them at the end of the chapter. And it's a terrible plague. Depending on what kind of a plague it is, maybe they're coughing and sputtering and vomiting, and it literally is coming out of their noses. Just a thought. I mean, these are real people. This isn't just metaphor. There was a funny, but also very sad, Babylon Bee post that I saw the other day, earlier this week. Jordan Peterson considers every possible meaning of Bible story, except that it might mean exactly what it says. <laughs> oh, uh, despite staggering intellect and deep study of God's word, psychologist slash professor slash author slash speaker slash room cleaning enthusiast, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson has resolved to stubbornly consider every possible tangential meaning of Bible stories, except for the notion that it actually just means what it's saying. Quote, the death of Jesus Christ is a brilliant symbol, Peterson said in a new episode of his Daily Wire series, Studying the Bible. Quote, does the narrative of Jesus' death on the cross actually mean that the Son of God gave his own life for our sins? Like, no way, man. What it shows is an archetypal manifestation of mankind's evolutionary need for stable hierarchical structures, end quote. <laughs> oh, sadly, sadly, un- unlike <laughs> those who are described in the next paragraph, I do think that Peterson might be able to see the forest for the trees. The Babylon Bee write-up continues, Peterson's Christian followers have been left frustrated by his ability to perform insightfully deep dives into biblical stories while simultaneously being unable to see the forest for the trees. I think he maybe does see the forest for the trees. I'm not convinced that he doesn't believe. I think he's not far from the kingdom. Maybe that's a better way to put it. And he's speaking the language, the lingua franca of our day. I'm not sure whether he actually believes or he doesn't. Don't get me wrong. I do believe what he says, which is all I can really see, what he writes, that's all I can really hear is what he says. I do believe his words indicate that he's reluctant to believe. But I wish that he would pray. I hope that he will someday pray, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. But we'll see. I'm glad for the good that Peterson is doing. I think he is doing some good. I think we should beware and we should be on guard that we're not going along with this over-psychologizing of things. It's good to understand human psychology, what's in the heart of man, what's in the mind of man. But if we are too good at only seeing the spiritual side of these stories, we'll miss that these were real men, women, and children going through the events, experiencing the events, doing the things that we're reading about in God's word. This is not just people complaining and how we need to understand the 
importance of a positive outlook. No, no, no. This is real people grumbling about real food that they were really eating in a real wilderness and then really being disciplined and corrected by God and in some cases put to death by God. This is real people experiencing the real wrath of God sometimes and the real blessings of God at other times. Because what is God doing here? You can think, oh, that's so harsh. They're just complaining about food. I mean, imagine if I as a parent reacted to my children complaining about dinner this way. Man, but understand that this is God forming the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into a nation, into a people, and recognize that it's not just complaining about food. Again, this is the people that God has brought out of Egypt ultimately grumbling against God. And doubtless, they've had an opportunity to leave, to go somewhere else. They don't want to go somewhere else. They want to stay here, but then they also want to grumble. They don't want to go back by themselves, but they also don't want to go on, so they're double-minded. Sometimes they do exactly what God tells them to do through Moses. Other times they grumble and complain. And if they had half a chance, if Moses weren't saying, thus saith the Lord, hey, this is God who said it. I'm the messenger. God God is the one who said this thing, okay? If they weren't being reminded, <clears throat> they would kill Moses and Aaron in all probability and go back to Egypt or do their own thing or just splinter off in a thousand directions. And so we may not fully grasp how it is that God is slow to anger and yet when his anger is kindled, he is very angry. He is very wrathful. We may not fully understand that. But then that is to say, we will get closer to understanding the character of God, the holiness of God, if we're not just reading this text as a means to the end of understanding ourselves better. Do understand yourself better. Do understand your fellow man better as a result of reading this text. But you can't actually even do that unless first you're striving to understand and pursue the God in whose image we're made. Start there and don't stop when it comes to understanding what's in the mind of man, what's in the heart of man, especially yourself. But do both in that order. If you want to love God and love your fellow man, love your neighbor as yourself, you have to put the two in that order. First and most, and with the utmost God, then your neighbor as yourself. But let's talk about some current events items. Last episode was fairly lengthy, not the longest episode you have heard on this podcast if you've been listening for a while, but a longer one talking about Ron DeSantis breaking the internet with his announcement that he is running for president of the United States of America in 2024. He announced that on Twitter spaces, their servers strained under the weight of all of these people tuning in, wanting to listen to the conversation. And on our last episode, I played for you several clips, one especially of the full announcement, the seven minutes announcement. It's worth checking out. You can go back to our last episode and you can find the timestamps and you can listen for yourself. 
It's towards the end of the episode. But following up, I have a few things to add that we just didn't have time for. It was already a long episode, last episode. A few things related to Ron DeSantis. Joseph McKinnon reports, for instance, at theblaze.com. On day one, we'll be spitting nails. DeSantis rages against deep state and pledges to dismantle it in Glenn Beck interview. Rages is a little clickbaity. Sorry. Joseph McKinnon, Glenn Beck, you guys over at the blaze. This is a little clickbaity. Come on. He, he just, he, he's not raging. Okay. He's not raging. But I'll play for you. Cut one. Take a listen. You tell me if you think he's raging. You decide. Here it is. Take a listen. FBI, DOJ, IRS, NSA, CIA, ATF, everything, even the Capitol Police now are an intelligence gathering agency. How do you even run a campaign when you know the all of government approach to the last election? Um, How do you how do you if you win, how do you dismantle this? Because it's. It's almost like a unplug it and plug it back in and reset it to factory settings. It, I mean, it's cleaning house. And, and I think that this is this is a fundamental problem. So we will look at like an example of weaponization, which is obviously many examples. Uh, but that's kind of the end point. Like, why are we here? And the reason that we're here is because uh, we have these agencies that have been detached from constitutional accountability. There was never supposed to be a fourth branch of government, but Congress has not held them accountable with the power of the purse or with legislating more precisely. And presidents have not been willing to wield Article II power to discipline the bureaucracy. So I think I'll come in and on day one, we'll be spitting nails. I understand and all your listeners should understand that if we do everything right, if we're disciplined, if we're strong as anyone could be, it still takes a two-term project. I think it takes eight years to be able to reconstitutionalize this government. But the question it raises is, do we govern ourselves or do we not? Because right now, the most significant issues tend not to be resolved by our elected representatives. They're done by these bureaucrats and through these agencies. And so it's really, I think, a crisis of self-government. Now, what you have with uh, lack of accountability you just have a consolidated uh, consolidation of power amongst people that all have the same worldview. And so their worldview is different than our worldview, and they view people like us as, as factions that they want to exert power over. And so the weaponization, I think, flows from, from human nature. So what would I do, you know, day one? First of all, I already, already said new FBI director, day one. That is a no-brainer. You've got to do that. I'll have an attorney general that has a backbone, uh, an attorney general that recognizes – if you are doing your job properly, you are going to be pilloried by the Washington Post and the New York Times and CNN. And so if that's not something that you're, you're comfortable with, then don't even apply for this job. And that's exactly right. That's exactly right. He gets it. And this sounds great. We do need to clean up these bureaucracies. It's not okay that the United States of America, the federal government, has become a bureaucratic state. This has happened in other countries throughout history. It happened in China, for instance, to where the bureaucracy became so bloated and so overgrown that 
the main recognizable figures that you would think of as being the government weren't in control at all. Everything was done through bureaucracies. And it can start out as something of a lazy or convenient way to get things done. But long-term, when unelected bureaucrats are making the decisions, you can have a very, very hard time bringing accountability, bringing reform, correcting abuses, correcting corruption. We need somebody strong and energetic and disciplined and who has an appetite for shrinking the size of government, limiting the scope of government to clean it up and to clean house and to get these things back into alignment with the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution is what our governing officials take an oath to uphold and to protect. That oath is sacred, and if they don't mean it anymore, well, then they need to be uh, let go. They need to be encouraged to go and get a job in the private sector. And not a job where they go and they work for the very companies that they have been regulating and overseeing and holding accountable to where it's this revolving door, it's this merry-go-round, work for the government and then retire to a nice cushy job working for the corporations, giving them the inside track on how to skirt these regulations better than their competitors. No, no, no. Let's put a stop to that. Let's put a stop to that. Make it simple. Make it make sense that these government officials are going to do the right thing. Give them incentives to do the right thing. Give them penalties if they do the wrong thing. Because, oh, by the way, let's just talk about the other side of the passage in Numbers that we read. In Numbers 11, you've got these people grumbling. And what happens very quickly when a couple of people start grumbling about something, very quickly it can spread. And even if you weren't discontented, well, now you're grumbling about other people grumbling, and now everybody's grumbling, and it's terrible for morale. It is not a way to enjoy life. It is not good for the health of your nation to have everybody grumbling, everybody complaining. It can go very, very badly. Let's get people out of government as a mercy to those who are trying to do the right thing, for instance. Let's get people out of government who are grumbling and complaining and activists and revolutionaries and corrupt as a mercy to those who would be regulated by them. Let's watch and see what happens with innovation in this country, with actual free market capitalism in this country, if you don't have fingers on the scales in favor of whoever gives the best bribe, whoever is liable to give me the best job offer when I decide to retire from this bureaucracy. Let's see how innovative American men and women and businesses have been wanting to be, but they've been restrained from being for decades. And what we might see is we might see a new golden age of economic opportunity, of invention, of educational reform. We might see a lot of growth unleashed just by taking the training wheels off of our own principles. It's enough. It's enough for us to look back on times past, decades past in American history and see that this has been tried and that it worked. Now it's time for us to 
put somebody in a position of authority to affect meaningful change and to go back to our founding principles. Were they good principles? That's the question we should ask. Not were the men who wrote these things down perfect? Moses definitely was not perfect. For instance, you don't see God giving an exception clause to the people of Israel. You will obey me if Moses is totally morally correct and perfect and never says anything wrong, never has a bad attitude, never misbehaves, never does the wrong thing. No, no, that's not what God does. He doesn't do it when Moses is leading the people of Israel. He doesn't do it at other times either. Now, there are times where the sins of a ruler affect the people to be sure and lead the whole of the nation or near enough as one man into sin and rebellion and disobedience and folly to be sure. But even on that front, that's another reason why we want to have our best and our brightest people of sound mind, of good health, of good cheer, of sound principles who have proven not just that they can give a speech or fill a stadium, but that they can get things accomplished that are good for us and are good for our posterity. We need to be thinking about our children and grandchildren here. And therefore, we need to take a long, hard look at the deep state, the bureaucracy that is getting in the way of our children's well-being, our grandchildren's well-being. In other news, Peter Heck over at Not the Bee has some worthwhile analysis, I think some insightful commentary on DeSantis. Best case scenario, shaping up DeSantis versus the field. This published the day before yesterday, May 25th. Peter Heck writes, with the official entry of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis into the Republican presidential primary, I'm anxious to see one thing. Will the contest coalesce in such a way that it's DeSantis versus the field, or will it mimic the 2016 campaign and become Trump versus the field? The outcome of the primary may very well hinge on that question. To this point, with DeSantis merely dancing around the periphery of the race, it has certainly appeared to be the former. The well-publicized feud between Florida's governor and rabid culture-warring leaders at the multi-billion-dollar Disney Corporation has propelled DeSantis into the good graces of the party's conservative base. The notoriety he's received has generated envious jabs from all current and likely primary participants, Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson, Vivek Ramaswamy, and even Mike Pence, have all joined Democrats, the New York Times, and Donald Trump, shouldn't that triple alliance be telling legitimate conservatives something, in attacking DeSantis. So here's a New York Times post to Twitter, May 18th. Disney is pulling the plug on a nearly $1 billion development planned for Orlando, Florida, the company said on Thursday as it feuds with Governor Ron DeSantis. Here is a screenshot of a post by the Trump 2024 campaign. With the leading header, President Trump is always right, which is just hubristic to beat all. Man alive. Here's a quote and a screenshot within the announcement from Donald J. Trump over at Truth Social. DeSanctus is being absolutely destroyed by Disney. His original PR plan fizzled, 
So now he's going back with a new one in order to save face. Disney's next move will be the announcement that no more money will be invested in Florida because of the governor. In fact, they could even announce a slow withdrawal or sale of certain properties or the whole thing. Watch. That would be a killer. In the meantime, this is also unnecessary. A political stunt. Ron should work on the squatter mess. <laughs> oh, President Trump is always right. I No. No. And especially not with that statement. This is very hubristic. This is very arrogant. No, Trump is not always right. DeSantis, I'm sure, is not always right. None of these guys are always right. You're not always right. I'm not always right. None of us is always right. This is a dangerous mindset. What was the passage from Ecclesiastes that I just shared with you in our last episode? Better a poor but wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer listens to advice. President Trump is not always right. Has he often been right? Has he gotten a lot of good accomplished? Yes, he has. But DeSantis is right on this. DeSantis was right to go after Disney. I firmly believe that. And it's not because I want to see destruction. I'm not like the guy who shows up to the protest with a sign that says, I'm just here for the violence. Disney doing what it's doing with regards to children, we should recognize as Christians is every bit as cancerous to the moral character of this country and of the world and of our reputation with the world and of our legacy forever after, as long as the world stands, what Disney is doing in promoting homosexuality, bisexuality, and transgenderism to children is a cancer here in the United States of America and around the world. And DeSantis going after their special self-governing status in the state of Florida is exactly correct and appropriate and not blowing things out of proportion. You can't have it both ways. You can't say on the one hand, oh, it's terrible what Disney is doing. We should do something about it. And then on the other hand, when somebody actually does something about it, when Disney is making threats against the state of Florida because DeSantis and the Republicans in the legislature passed legislation protecting children from gender theory indoctrination, comprehensive sex education in the public schools, when he actually does something about it and says, oh, you think you're going to threaten us? I'll threaten you right back. I'm going to protect I'm going to serve. I'm going to keep my oath of office. You can't then say, oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. You know what? Enough of the talk. In all toil, there's a profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. You can't just talk, talk, talk about how it's so bad what Disney is doing. It's so bad what Target is doing. It's so bad what Bud Light is doing. And then that's all it is. Talk. DeSantis actually did something, and I think he did the right thing personally, not just because he did something, but I think he hit Disney where it counts. If this were a actual war, not just a culture war, how would you defeat the enemy most effectively? If you read B.H. Liddell Hart, you would go after their supply lines. This is why school choice is a brilliant way of 
bringing the public schools to heel or else abolishing the government monopoly on schooling, which never should have taken place in the first place. It never should have set up shop in the first place. But how do you go after the supply line for the public schools? You promote school choice. You say the tax dollars need to follow the children. If the parents want to send their kids to a private school, a charter school, a technical school, trade school, if they want to homeschool, the tax dollars follow the child. That's how you get the attention of the public schools. You go after their supply lines. Why do I say that those are the supply lines for the public schools? Because the funding for public schools is tied directly to the performance of the students, for one thing, and for two, the number of students. And only all the more if the kids are perceived to have special needs, they get more money. So if those kids all of a sudden are taking their special needs and their academic performance somewhere else because the public schools are not getting it done and the parents are free now to do so, to send their kids to another option, you will either have public schools shaping up or you will have public schools collapsing effectively. Probably a little bit of both, depending on where you're at. And I say, the sooner the better. B.H. Liddell Hart would say, strategy, the indirect approach, learn from Sherman, you go after the supply lines. You take out the enemy's ability to continue fighting you on the battlefield by removing their access to food, munitions, clothing, additional weapons and arms, fresh troops. That's how you fight. Not by charging the machine gun nest across a muddy field filled with concertina wire. But Peter Heck continues. I suppose to some, heading your press release with a statement, President Trump is always right, makes it true. To the rest of us who live not by lies, it's anything but. In fact, pointing to that Times misinformation to suggest that DeSantis has been bested, no less absolutely destroyed by Disney in this battle is startlingly ignorant. First, the obvious fact that Disney is in a deep financial mess is foundational to understanding all of this. The company's business plan has proven to be a train wreck. For instance, going all in on a streaming service that is hemorrhaging money has proven to be a disaster. Disney has lost over $123 billion with a B in just one year. Its stock has depreciated 44% in one year. Things were so bad that the board had to fire CEO Bob Chappick and overpay former CEO Bob Iger to return. Like anyone who observed his first tenure would have predicted, Iger isn't exactly leading a company resurrection. Things are not turning around. Iger has been forced to axe to ax 7,000 workers and has tried to scale back previous ambitious projects. Chappick had envisioned. Long story short, you can check out the full article from Peter Heck, but best case scenario for America is that DeSantis just keeps on doing well. Just keep on doing well. And in due time, all of the other Republican nominees and the Democrat nominees 
will be so focused on trying to criticize you that all anybody's ever talking about is whether you're being successful. And if you are, in fact, being successful, the more attention that is drawn to you being effective and successful, and if you can stand up under that pressure, Governor DeSantis, then you will come out shining. And we will all have a much better country, much better governed for it. I hope. I agree with Peter Heck. That's a best case scenario. Uh, an interesting, fun little side trail. So this idea of Donald Trump giving the Florida governor a uh, mean nickname, trying to do that with all of his political opponents, everybody he doesn't like. For years and years, that's what he's done is he tries to come up with some nickname to pin on them. And sometimes the nicknames are very funny, right? Like Crying Chuck, Chuck Schumer, Crying Chuck, Low Energy is another one he'll throw at people like Jeb Bush, low energy Jeb Bush. Well, for Ron DeSantis, you may have heard, he's calling him Ron DeSanctimonious. I was thinking about what else could be done with Ron DeSantis's uh, last name. What what else could be done as a comeback? Like, no, it's not DeSanctimonious. It's uh, Ron DeSanitas, for instance. That would mean of health in Latin, by the way. Think sanity. <laughs> Think sanitation. Associate that with Ron DeSantis. That would be better. Interestingly, I looked up the DeSantis name meaning over at FamilySearch.org, and here's what came up for DeSantis family history, DeSantis name meaning, and I quote, some characteristic forenames, Italian Angelo, Vito, Antonio, Rocco, Dominique, Gino, Lorenzo, Pasquale, Sal, Salvatore, Camillo, Dante. Those are some characteristic names that go with DeSantis. So it's an Italian name, as it turns out, according to FamilySearch.org. The definition, it's a patronymic from the personal name Santo. It is formed with the Latin ablative plural suffix is, imparting the broader sense belonging to or of. In this case, member of the Santi family. Compare De Sanctis, De Santis, and Santis. So the Santi bit here, I see elsewhere, means saint or holy. Think sanctified, sanctus. So in actual fact, Trump calling him De Sanctimonious, that's turning what is a good thing into an ugly thing. It's not good to be sanctimonious. But it is good to be sanctified. That is good. Sanctification, not something to joke about or poo-poo, not something to grumble about, not something to jeer at or mock or scoff at. And I hate to say it, but some of our politics as usual is just plain scoffing. It's not substantive. It's not meaningful. It's not persuasive. It's just scoffing. And therefore, it's foolish. And therefore, it represents being wise in our own eyes. Another reason to not endorse that and to not lean into that and to instead prefer sanctification as Christians and to promote somebody who is going to encourage and reward what is good. On a lighter note, though, to poke just a little bit of fun, to have a little bit of fun with the name-calling from Trump towards DeSantis, Here's a couple more 
Babylon B articles to share with you briefly. First, I'm not sanctimonious and I don't look like a meatball, whispers Ron DeSantis crying self to sleep at night. <laughs> and the picture is great. It, it really is. Uh, the picture is Ron DeSantis, his head on a pillow, the lights out, clearly pouting, looking like he is probably crying himself to sleep. Soft whimpers were heard late last night at the governor's mansion as aides reported Ron DeSantis whispering in between sobs over insults lobbed his way by former President Donald Trump. Trump's wrong, DeSantis was overheard, saying to himself as he sniffled. I'm not sanctimonious, and I don't look like a meatball. He's he's just a big stinky jerk. Trump has ramped up his attacks on DeSantis in the wake of the Florida governor's official announcement that he was entering the race to win the Republican nomination for president in 2024, quote, the state of Florida has gone downhill drastically since Rob DeSanctimonious has been governor, Trump posted to his Truth Social account. I helped him out bigly by endorsing him, basically handing him the victory. And this is how Meatball shows his gratitude. Total loser. <laughs> On the other hand, <laughs> one more, just one more. Babylon B article for this episode. <laughs> Florida is mismanaged hellhole and only an idiot would live there, says Trump. <laughs> Quote, Florida is a terrible place, really terrible, a hellhole, really, said Trump. Only very, very stupid people live in Florida. That's how bad it is. So bad, really bad. But it would be a wonderful, perfect place if Ron DeSanctimonious, Meatball Ron, hadn't driven it into the ground like a dog. Now only very bad dummies still live there, and I know a thing or two about really bad dummies. Sad! <laughs> Trump then vowed he would work with CNN, MSNBC, and Dr. Fauci to ensure DeSantis didn't win and then make the entire country just like Florida, where stupid people live. The funny thing, the funny thing is... Trump lives in Florida, so that that's the joke, right? That's the joke. Coming back to Colorado, though, some states have more problems than others. Some states have different kinds of problems. Florida has its problems for sure, but thankfully they have Ron DeSantis. In the state of Colorado, we have unique challenges, including a governor who is not – Ron DeSantis, <laughs> by a long shot, a governor who's very progressive. But we also have a real mixture of people. We have a hodgepodge of people. You have all kinds. You have conservatives. You have progressives. You have city dwellers, for sure. You have rural folk that live either in the mountains or out on the plains. You have people who are native-born Coloradans. You have people from all over the country who have moved here. You have people from all over the world who have moved here because it's a beautiful state. It really is. The mountains are fantastic. There is a wide range of things to do. There's skiing, there's hiking, there's fishing, there's various concert venues, great places to eat, great sites. But there are challenges that come with being a state where people come to from all over the country and all over the world 
There are challenges that accompany that. And one of the challenges comes up in this next story from the Denver Post. Elizabeth Hernandez writes, Colorado student sues school district that wouldn't let her wear Mexican flag sash at graduation. Garfield County School District 16 told the Denver Post the district does not have a comment regarding the pending litigation. Now, if you'll remember, I talked about this story here a few weeks back before there was litigation. It was just the headline, and somebody must have talked with this gal, this young gal, who was upset that she wasn't allowed to wear this sash. And they must have said to her, you know what, this is unacceptable. You should sue. And she gave it some thought, and she decided, you know what, you're right. Let's sue. And can I just say, I think this is a frivolous lawsuit, for one thing. I think for another thing, this is ingratitude. Why were you going to this school if you didn't affirm its values? If your parents didn't affirm its values? Really, truly. I mean, this is a high school. I get that. And I also understand that sometimes it's difficult to have choices. I get that. And oh, by the way, I wrote the book and this is why we homeschool. So I'm not a big fan of public schools anyways, but I just don't understand why you would go to an institution, why you would go to a college or a university or a high school for that matter, and then insist that they have to completely throw out their dress code because you want to wear something different. And then you're going to not just complain about it. You're not going to just bring embarrassment on the school by putting it in the newspapers. You're going to file a lawsuit against the school. Come on. And there are legitimate things to file lawsuits over. Don't get me wrong. If it's a matter of conscience, for instance, if it's a matter of conviction, like religious conviction, that's one thing. But we're talking a sash that shows the national colors of the Mexican flag and the American flag, the United States of America's flag, is not even an option for this school. So this is not discrimination on the basis of you being a Mexican-American. It's not discrimination based on you having darker skin. It's not a discrimination based on your parents being immigrants. It's none of those things. This is... A simple matter of dress code. And just because you really wanted to wear something else, that doesn't mean you're entitled to sue for damages. It's not corruption on the part of the local school to tell you no in this regard. So I think this should be thrown out. I think shame on this young woman, or more to the point, shame on whoever has been telling her that she has a right. I don't think anybody has a right to demand that they get to wear a special sash to their graduation. And you can come up with lots of sentimental sentimental reasons that are totally legitimate and totally valid if it were permitted, but it's as simple as you ask. And if they say no, then you just accept that. But this is taking what should be an honor and a celebration and turning it into something dishonorable. It's as simple as that. And actually, oh, by the way, let's do remember the reading from Numbers, chapter 11, this kind of grumbling and complaining God takes it seriously, much more seriously than we do. I think maybe we should take it more seriously than we do. 
it's one thing to have valid complaints, and it's definitely a good thing for us to have individual liberty. I guarantee you, if you were homeschooled, you could wear whatever sash you want to graduation. So there's that, and I'm all for that. But if you want to go back to the country that your parents came here from and see if they'll let you wear the sash, go for it. Or if you want to go to a different school, go for it. But I don't think there's any standing. I think this is totally frivolous. And I think it's bad form. This is not a good look. And this is not a great expression of gratitude and thankfulness for having been welcomed in. If this is the most discrimination you face in your life, that you were told, no, you can't break the dress code. Everybody else is supposed to wear the sash that is the uniform for this institution, this school, and you're being treated just like everybody else, then you either accept that and get on with it or go somewhere else. Easy peasy. In other news, Ben Zeisloft reports for the Daily Wire, foreign-born workers now make up nearly one-fifth of American workforce. Now, get this. I personally am blown away. I had no idea. This is wild. This is wild to me. Workers born in other nations comprised 18.1% of the workforce in 2022, according to data released last week by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, marking an increase from 17.4% in 2021. Hispanics account for nearly half of the foreign-born labor force, while Asians account for one-quarter of the foreign-born labor force. Average weekly earnings for foreign-born workers were $945 last year, while weekly earnings for their native-born counterparts were $1,087. So, Just to be very clear, (laughs) that's nearly one in five people working in the U.S. are from other countries. Now, a couple things occur to me all at once. I have several questions. One, when it comes to controlling the border and controlling immigration, monitoring, regulating, managing who's coming into our country, how many people are coming into the country. What are they doing here? Where do we put them? (laughs) Are we treating them well? Are they treating our people well? What percentage of foreign-born workers is correct? What would be the ideal? Are we not there yet in some people's minds? And on the other hand, is there such a thing as too much? Is there such a thing as too many people from foreign countries coming into this country when it comes to maintaining a certain equilibrium, when it comes to maintaining the rule of law or a common culture or a common language, at what point does it become too much? For instance, for example, let's just consider what if 50% of the people working in this country are from another country, originally from another country. Is that just right? Is that too much? Is that not enough? How about 75%? I mean, I would think that's too much, right? That's probably too much. 
But what if 18% is too much? And here, what I have in view is not, let's tell people who have come here legally to go home. I'm not suggesting that unless the terms of their entrance into the country were temporary from the get-go, in which case I say we hold them to the original agreement. If they had a visa that was set to expire at a certain point, when it expires, if there's an avenue for them to apply for an extension, let them apply. And if there's an extenuating circumstance, let them make that known. And otherwise, we say, you're going to have to go home. This is our country. And if you're not going to be a citizen here, paying taxes and voting and all the rest, go home and try again. If you want to apply to be here permanently, let's explore that. Let's consider that. But people coming into the country from all over without permission and even against the law, against the laws of this country, that's a real problem because it implies that this is not actually our country. And if there are significant numbers of Americans who've been trained in the public schools to think we shouldn't actually view this as our country and we shouldn't protect our borders as if this is our country, if there's a certain segment of the American people who believe that it's racist and hateful and bigoted and ignorant to control access to your own country, my big question would be, do you control access to your own home or your own vehicle? Ooh, now, now it's a little bit different, right? Because if you buy a home, let's say you're in the minority in this market, but you have saved your money and your credit is good and maybe you have to take out a little bit of financing, but you buy a home and let's say even that it's got extra rooms. I mean, you've got five bedrooms, but it's just you and your significant other. And so you don't need five bedrooms. You're not going to sleep in all five simultaneously. And it would be frivolous and luxurious and extravagant for you to just rotate through. Nobody does that. But just saying, you don't need all those bedrooms. And so what if people who live in the community just all of a sudden decided they were going to take some of those bedrooms off your hands? They were going to set up shop. They were going to occupy some of those bedrooms, whether you like it or not. How would you feel about that? Of course, you would feel very concerned because maybe the people who come in are very sweet people. Maybe they're very kind people. Maybe they're very well-intentioned. Maybe they just need a place to sleep. And all of that can be true. And also it can be true that there's something untoward and inappropriate about them disrespecting you by barging in uninvited. They're not a guest at that point. They're an intruder. And so herein lies the existential crisis for the United States of America when so many American youths have been brought up in the public schools to believe that this is an inherently unjust, oppressive country and that it's wrong for us to control access to our country, control access to our borders. What is it that folks will point to? They'll say, well, it was actually the Native Americans who were here first. And I say, which ones? Which which Native Americans? Which tribe? Which tribe had the first claim to a certain part of what is now the United States of America? And I guarantee you, just as soon as you've got that all figured out, you're going to have objections raised by certain tribes who are going to say, well, actually, in our oral traditions, we were here in this part of the country before that tribe was. That tribe was just here when you guys showed up. But we were fighting and it went back and forth. And then before us, there was another tribe still. 
at a certain point, you have to just say, this is what it is. And either we have the strength and the courage of our convictions to be able to possess what is ours and to hold it, or we don't. And if we lack one or both of those prerequisites, then we don't have a country anymore. It's as simple as that. Just like if your house is not your house, if all of a sudden it's the community's house, it's the city's house, it's all of the homeless people in the county's house, well then maybe you don't have fewer homeless people. Maybe you have one more homeless person. You, because you bought this house and you are most to be pitied because you bought this house and now it's not yours functionally. You see, this is the way we ought to be looking at the immigration question more. There are a number of problems with the way that the Democrats manage immigration. For one, listen to them talk about what they think illegal immigrants are needed for. They're needed to pick fruit and mow the yard and watch children and clean houses and do janitorial work. That's how the Democrats in Congress talk, like they are the current iteration of or the representation of the old plantation lords and ladies of the antebellum South. That's how they talk. That's how they reason. Meanwhile, you have Republicans being portrayed as only for big business. Well, the Republicans, they just care about big corporations and super wealthy folk, and they're giving tax cuts to the rich. And what are Republicans increasingly talking about? Hey, we've got middle class and poor Americans who don't have access to affordable housing. They don't have enough cash flow because their taxes are too high or because inflation is devaluing the value of their wages, or they don't have enough job opportunities because jobs are being given to automation or they're being shipped overseas or they're being given to illegal immigrants. And all of these are valid concerns. The fruit does need picked and the lawn does need mowed and the house does need cleaned and your kids do need watched from time to time. But how would it be, how much better if we were having more children instead of just saying, oh, Americans aren't having enough kids, like Chuck Schumer said. Americans aren't having enough kids, and so we need to import illegal immigrants who are going to have more babies. I say, well, it's great that they're having kids, and we should want their countries that they're coming from to be safer and more prosperous, to have more opportunity and more security. We should want more stability in the countries that they're from, and we should also want all of that for this country. Just like it's legitimate for them to want those things, it's also legitimate for our people to want those things. And maybe, just maybe, we take it on a case-by-case basis. I'm comfortable with that. You know, listen to somebody's story, and if they say, hey, I am being persecuted. If I go back to my home country, I'm going to be murdered for having converted to Christianity. I say, let's trust but verify. But if their story checks out, let's give them asylum. Let's do that. If somebody is pretending to be escorting a child who's not their child across the border, well, then it should be very concerning that the Biden administration just put a stop to DNA testing of minors that come across with adults. You don't know if those minors are actually the children of those adults. Those adults might be coyotes. They might be smugglers just pretending that they're a family unit 
so that they can smuggle across people and drugs and weapons and God knows what. And then what happens to those kids? See, all of this is important and all of this matters all at the same time. And the Democrats can't be trusted to be straight about anything. I mean, they can't be straight about sexuality and gender. How are they supposed to be straight about anything? But you catch them making clear their real reasons for wanting illegal immigration. And they start talking about voting and they start talking about how they expect the people who are coming into the country illegally to vote Democrat. And when they start talking about how these illegal immigrants will do the manual labor for cheaper under the table very often, that's how it gets to be cheapers because they're undocumented. So <laughs> it makes it very clear that this is about money and it's about power. And in a very sinister way, these Democrats don't really care about either the illegal immigrants or we, the people, the American people. They care about themselves and they care about their, their, their very wealthy, very ambitious, very hubristic donors. It's as simple as that. I'm sorry to say, I think 18% is too high. I think that's too many foreign-born workers for us to be able to maintain a certain equilibrium. I do. I think we should be having more children. I think we should be homeschooling those kids. I think we should be taking our families to church. I think we should make sure all these young people who are having kids get married. I think that these young families should be able to buy a home, not rent in perpetuity, buy a home that they own. And they should be able to protect their home and their family with a firearm because that's the Second Amendment. I think they should be able to send their kids to a private school or to a STEM school or a trade school with their taxpayer dollars. I think they should be able to get a good job. And I think there should be a lot more competition in the economy. I think they should be able to go to church without worrying that the FBI is going to be spying on their church and treating them like domestic terrorists just because they're opposed to abortion and transgenderism and homosexuality. I think 18% is as high a number as it is right now because the Democrats don't want to admit what their real goals are and how they have damaged this country and the people of this country to this point. And if we don't stop them, if we don't stem the tide of dishonesty and ineptitude from the Democrat Party, this won't be a country that people from other countries are going to want to sneak into anymore. Ironically, it's a badge of honor that there are so many people who want to come here illegally because it's a better country than so many other countries. But if we wanted to continue being a better country than so many other countries for economic opportunity, for security, for stability – we got to stop listening to the Democrats. we got to stop putting the Democrats in charge. It's as simple as that. Moving on, another Colorado story. This one sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez, just this morning. Colorado Teachers Union adopts anti-capitalist polemic. Luigi Del Puerto reports for the Denver Gazette. The Colorado Teachers Union confirmed adopting an anti-capitalist polemic at its 97th annual delegate assembly. The Colorado Education Association, which represents more than 39,000 K-12 teachers, support professionals and higher education staffers, held its 
Assembly in April and passed this resolution, and I quote, The CEA believes that capitalism inherently exploits children, public schools, land, labor, and resources. Capitalism is in opposition to fully addressing systemic racism, the school-to-prison pipeline, climate change, patriarchy, gender and LGBTQ disparities, education inequality, and income inequality. End quote. Brian Lindstrom, a history teacher in Aurora who ran for city council in 2021, authored the resolution. Lindstrom didn't return requests for comment, but his Twitter feed hints of his ideological persuasion. On May 1st, for example, he tweeted the last line from Marx and Engels, the Communist Manifesto, Workers of the World Unite Solidarity on May Day. May 1st is International Workers' Day. In an email, the Colorado Education Association confirmed the resolution's passage as well as Lindstrom's authorship. The resolution caused an uproar in Colorado and elsewhere. Brenda Dickoner, president and CEO of Ready Colorado, which advocates for choice in schools, defended capitalism, saying it has, quote, left us safer and more equitable than any other economic system in human history. With a majority of our students not reading, writing, or doing math at grade level, we would urge the CEA to focus on improving student outcomes instead of dismantling an economic system that promotes human prosperity and innovation, end quote. This is very important that we would recognize that the public schools teachers union is now openly calling for abolishing capitalism in the state of Colorado. This is of a piece with gender theory. It's of a piece with critical race theory. That's because all of the above are Marxist. And oh, by the way, Marx was not a friend to Christianity. In his younger days, according to Richard Wormbrand, he was raised a Christian. And then at a certain point, as Richard Wormbrand writes, it would seem Marx literally sold his soul to the devil. And some of his writings that have been kept a little quieter outline this fascination with Satan, this admiration for Satan. And it's not for no reason that the target boycott is catching on to one of the designers target contracted to come up with clothing items and other products. This guy also promotes Satanist materials. It's not for no reason. It's not for no reason that Marxism, that communism, that Stalinism and Leninism and Maoism have so frequently violently persecuted Christianity. Marx and the system that he and Engels came up with, they were diametrically opposed to Christian ethics, Christian morality, the God of Christianity. In fact, they're at war with the definitions of right and wrong, true and false, fairness and unfairness that we find in the Bible. So it's not just by accident that these things are going together, that the push for gender theory is accompanying the push for critical race theory, that the push for critical race theory is accompanying diatribes against capitalism in the state of Colorado. I'm absolutely 100% on board for school choice, 100%. This is yet another reason why you should be too. In other news, FDA study shows serious safety issues, elevated risk 
of myocarditis and pericarditis in young people after taking the COVID jab, Harris Rigby reports. Well, here's some news we could have used, I don't know, over a year ago when Elmo was on TV telling kids it's totally safe and effective for young people to get the Fauci ouchie. This new journal of the American Medical Association study shows what those kooky right-wing conspiracy theorists have been talking about for a long time. The COVID jab is not totally safe for young people. The FDA helped to fund this JAMA study, which in essence showed that the risks for pericarditis and myocarditis were especially prevalent for young people immediately after getting the experimental COVID jab. Of the 20 possible risks that the study looked at, pericarditis and myocarditis were shown as significant risks, risks that should have triggered a safety warning from the Epoch Times. Vaccinated children aged 12 to 17 faced a heightened risk of myocarditis, a form of heart inflammation and a related condition called pericarditis, U.S. Food and Drug Administration FDA researchers found. The number of myocarditis and pericarditis events in that age group met the threshold for a safety signal, the researchers reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association on May 22nd. The elevated risk was present within seven days of vaccination, according to the data. End quote. In my recollection, maybe you remember different, maybe you experienced different, this was put forward as a prerequisite for attending public schools. And oh, by the way, let me just say again, as a homeschooling father, my wife and I, we put no such prerequisite on our kids being homeschooled. We will absolutely let our kids continue coming to school and doing their work and getting an education and getting a very fine one, if I do say so myself, good work, Lauren, without getting the COVID vaccine. In fact, over my dead body, I said years ago, over my dead body, would my kids be getting the COVID vaccine? I mean it. You try to stick my wife or my kids with that thing and I'll kill you. You're not going to do it. They don't want it. And you're not going to do it because there's a kind of rape that's inherent to forcing people to get this thing, particularly when they don't want it and they don't need it. And there are some very serious health effects and risks associated with it. And it wasn't either tested sufficiently or honestly sold to us. Maybe the big idea was we just want to get everybody vaccinated because we're panicking right now. That's no excuse. It might be an explanation. It might be a reason. No excuse. Also, a possibility you have people looking at the problem of America being what's wrong with the world, and you have people looking at the problem of supposed overpopulation, and the world is going to burn because people are filling up the earth and subduing it, And maybe some crazy person, like has existed many times throughout history, decided it would be better for most people in this locale to just stop living, to become unalive. So we'll give them this vaccine. We'll see what happens. What happens, happens. Maybe they won't be able to have kids. Maybe they'll get a heart attack and pass on from this life. I'm not saying that's for sure what happened, but I am saying All options are on the table for explaining why the objections, the very reasonable objections, the very historically 
well-founded, constitutionally protected objections of American parents, of American men and women. Why do you even have to be a parent? I'm not even just talking for my wife and my kids. Don't you try to stick me with that thing. I'll take that as a hostile action. And it would be appropriate for me to. Don't treat me like I'm some piece of livestock out in the field. I'm not your cattle. I'm not your sheep. Don't come around here like that. And yet, so many, so many of my countrymen did blindly believe everything the news media told them, everything Democrat politicians told them, everything pop culture, hired guns told them. They believed everything the public health officials told them. And I feel profoundly sorry for the people who are still stuck. They're still under that hypnosis. I feel profoundly sorry, but I feel a deep and abiding anger, a righteous anger towards those who threatened to destroy and also did destroy lives and livelihoods with their approach to COVID policy. May God have mercy on their souls. They were warned. Attempts were made to reason with them. Not all of them can claim to having been just following orders. Some of them were the ones giving the orders. And they very arrogantly exploited the opportunity to get more wealth and power for themselves and to hold on to wealth and power for themselves and for their political allies. And I'm not going to forget, you shouldn't either. Let's not avenge ourselves, beloved. Leave it to the wrath of God. But he has shown us, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of us but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? There should be accountability. Every single person in authority who mandated this stuff, who destroyed lives and livelihood by pushing this stuff, every single one should be removed from office and barred from ever serving in public office again. They should be removed from corporations and from positions of management in corporations. They should not be teachers. They should not be school administrators. They shouldn't be entrusted with other people's children. In a word, everybody who was complicit in mandating this stuff should go find a nice, quiet job picking fruit, mowing lawns, cleaning houses. I would sooner have them doing that kind of work and have more immigration to backfill their positions. Maybe some more immigration from countries that also weren't really on board with the whole COVID lockdowns, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, social distancing thing. Let's have more immigration from those countries, people that were also similarly ostracized. That's an idea. Let's look into that. Last but not least, here's a article for us to talk about from ninemarks.org, written by Matthew Y. Emerson. Matt Emerson, PhD, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, is Dean of Theology, Arts, and Humanities at Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, as well as co-executive director of the Center for Baptist Renewal. He writes, is it possible to be a Baptist Christian nationalist? Here he's got some Q&A down through, but he starts off like so, and I quote, Christian nationalism is dominating evangelical conversations at the moment, at least in some circles, given the current cultural 
challenges faced by the evangelical church in the West, and especially in the USA and Western Europe, many are looking to Christian nationalism as an alternative political proposal to procedural liberalism, especially the variety propagated in the latter half of the 20th century. Yet, is Christian nationalism compatible with historic Baptist distinctives, with credo-Baptist congregational convictions? It is the contention of this essay that it is not, and especially due to the difference in how Christian nationalism and congregational credo-Baptists view the relation between the covenants. That's an interesting rationale, but let's see what he has to say. Question, what is Christian nationalism? And of course, every article about Christian nationalism has to ask this question, it seems, and it also seems to me as though it's kind of an ironic question to ask because everybody's talking about Christian nationalism, but nobody seems to know what it is. So why do we, if everybody's talking about it, if, every, if this is this big thing, why do we have to keep defining it? Why, why does everybody in every article about this have to define what Christian nationalism is? It's almost as if it's like being at an art gallery with a whole bunch of postmodernists. What does this painting mean to you? Uh, no, 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 no. Let's not go and read the, the biography of the painter. No, no, no. Let's not go and consult a traditional art history book. Let's not go read what the artist himself wrote. No, no. Let's <laughs> let's talk about what the painting means to us, and then we'll just imagine that we're the painter, and what would we feel and and mean and be thinking if we had painted this? You know, let's let's do that. I digress. Matt Emerson answers the question of how to define Christian nationalism as follows. As a subspecies of magisterial Reformation political theology, Christian nationalism sees continuity between the purpose and function of pre-lapsarian, post-lapsarian, and redeemed nations. Now, let's just stop right there. We'll stop again. Sorry. I'm going to stop and start and stop and start all throughout talking about this piece by Matt Emerson. And I've seen him on panel discussions, by the way, where he was debating. And I'm not super impressed. I was raised in a lot of Baptist churches growing up, which isn't to say I'm an expert on what it means to be a Baptist, but it is to say I was raised in a lot of Baptist churches across America. And maybe that's part of it. I'm not a Baptist. I am non-denominational for a reason. I can respect certain things from the Baptist tradition in church history since the Reformation, but nevertheless, the answer here that Christian nationalism is a subspecies of magisterial Reformation political theology, that it sees continuity between the purpose and function of pre-lapsarian, post-lapsarian, and redeemed nations, that answer seems somewhat to be blinding us with science or an attempt at blinding us with science, to my way of thinking. The common person who thinks of themselves as a Christian nationalist has no idea, has no idea what you're talking about here. They have no idea what magisterial Reformation political theology is. They have no idea what pre-lapsarian, post-lapsarian, and redeemed nations are, much less what the difference would be that you would say, well, that was for then and this is for now. Just so you know, pre-lapsarian 
has to do with before the fall. Well, how many nations were there before the fall? Not a lot. Not a, not a, not a lot of nations. In fact, none. There was Adam and Eve, and it would be a stretch to call them a nation. They were a couple. So we don't have any examples of pre-Lapsarian nations, except in our imagination. So then post-Lapsarian. Well, what are some examples of post-Lapsarian nations? Uh, let's see. Uh, <clears throat> let's, let's, let's think about this. All of them. All of them. All of them are post-Lapsarian. <laughs> All of the nations are post-Lapsarian nations. Because we didn't have any nations before the fall, which is not to say that nations are a result of the fall any more than it is to say that the smartphone or iPad or Kindle or PC that you're listening to this podcast on, in all likelihood, is a result of the fall. Just because it came after the fall, that doesn't mean that it's a result of the fall. Just because nations came after the fall, that doesn't mean that they're a result of the fall. And also, oh, by the way, can I just point out that as with those devices, There is an expectation, which is universal to Christians, I do believe, at least serious Christians who are serious about living lives in obedience to Christ, there is an expectation that even though these things are not the result of the fall per se, our development of them has been affected by man's sinful nature, our use of them is affected by man's sinful nature. What's available on these electronic devices is affected by man's sinful nature. If other people are creating content and what we ourselves want to seek out is affected by our own sinful nature. And so I could wax eloquent with you about pre-Lapsarian smartphones and post-Lapsarian smartphones and redeemed smartphones. And all of it is a lot of nonsense to the common person. And I mean that. They have no idea what I'm talking about. It sounds like I'm being rather ridiculous. And as a matter of fact, I might be rather ridiculous. This is a lot simpler than Matt Emerson is making it out to be, I would maintain. There's an expectation that just because your smartphone is not found in the Bible, you still nevertheless, as a Christian, have a responsibility to approach your smartphone in such a way that your use of it would honor God, would please God. It wouldn't dishonor God. It wouldn't be disobedient. It wouldn't be sinful. It wouldn't be wicked. It wouldn't be corrupt. Your use of your PC, so also your use of your TV or your Kindle or your iPad or your fill-in-the-blank is still subject to the Lordship of Christ. And so what would we say? Parents, Christian parents who tell their kids, all right, listen, I don't want you taking these electronic devices down into the basement where we can't see what you're looking at, hear what you're listening to, take a look over your shoulder to see what you're reading. We don't want you doing that because you could end up being corrupted by some of these things. We want there to be safety and also accountability and also a certain guidance, even if you're in your teens. So long as you're under this roof, your mom and I, we want you to be safe. If we say that to our kids, my wife and I, is some academic going to make it overly complicated and tell me, well, I don't know if you're really perceiving the discontinuity between the purpose and function of pre-lapsarian, post-lapsarian, and redeemed electronic devices. You know, no, 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 no. Now, an exception here, a difference is that we do find nations in the Bible. We do find nations in the Old Testament. We also find them in the New Testament. But in both cases, it's not as though God only has a relationship towards 
his people Israel, or as though he only takes notice of, he only judges with righteousness the nation of Israel. It's not as though when we read, for instance, Proverbs 14, 33 through 35, wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. When we read that, you and I should not suppose that that is limited to Israel or Judah as sovereign independent nations. Part of how I know that is because when Paul writes Romans 13 in the New Testament, he explicitly states that the governing authority, and here we should understand what he means is the civil authority, the governing authority is a minister of God, instituted, put in place, empowered by God for the purpose of rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil. That does not mean that the civil authority in nations which are pagan will consistently, perfectly reward those who do good and punish those who do evil. Any more than husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church means that husbands who are even Christians are going to perfectly love their wives as Christ loved the church. Or that wives who are told, submit yourselves to your husbands in everything as unto the Lord are going to perfectly submit to their husbands in everything. But it is to say this is the ideal, this is the standard to shoot for, and when it comes to our engagement, we could learn a thing or two from the Babylonian captivity and what God tells Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. I am not, to be clear, and to give a caveat on even talking through Matt Emerson's piece at Nine Marks, I am not, first and foremost, concerned about whether somebody can be a Baptist Christian nationalist, because I'm not a Baptist But I think it's a little bit odd to lead with framing Christian nationalism as a failure to understand the distinction between pre-fall, post-fall, and redeemed nations. We're all living in a post-fall circumstance. In fact, all the nations throughout history, until Christ returns or calls us home, all of the nations we have ever known, will ever know, currently endure or enjoy by turn, all are post-lapsarian. Continuing on, Emerson asks the question, is a Baptist view of the relationships between the covenants compatible with Christian nationalism or a magisterial view? His answer is no. As part of the radical reformation, Baptists see not only continuity, but also discontinuity between the old and new covenants, which leads them to different conclusions regarding baptism, polity, and the state, namely the coterminous relationship between the people of God and a nation, Israel, was temporary. So what he would say is, God hasn't established a covenant with the United States of America, therefore what? Therefore, we can't be a Christian nation in any sense of the term, or we can't want our nation to be characterized by obedience to Christ. That's folly, it's a waste of time, it's total nonsense. Again, I think his definition of Christian nationalism is problematic, and that sets the course for the rest of the problems with his explaining how it's not possible to be this so-called Christian nationalist. Now, if he wants to say, which he does, he disagrees with Stephen Wolfe's 
arguments for Stephen Wolf's case for Christian nationalism, well, that's one thing. But I'm still not sold on Stephen Wolf being the one who gets to define what Christian nationalism is and isn't any more than I am sold on Matt Emerson defining what Christian nationalism is and isn't. Let's do remember this term came out of seemingly nowhere in recent years as a pejorative, much like the term Christian in the first place. You could come up with some lofty rationale for why we shouldn't call ourselves Christians too if you were to go back several centuries when people started calling these followers of the way, these followers of Jesus, little Christs, you could say, well, that's sacrilegious and we're not worthy. And you know, you need to understand the distinction between Christ and us. And I say, yes, thank you. Thank you very much. I don't know if you can hear my eyes rolling, but they are. Yes, thank you very much. Not helpful. The reason why these people are calling followers of Jesus, little Christs, to mock them is not because we are misrepresenting <laughs> who Christ is and who we are and, and all that. Necessarily, Jesus said, actually, the more like me you are, if I can paraphrase, the more they're going to hate you. They hated me before they hated you. They hate the master of the house. How much more are the servants? How much more are the followers? If they hated me, they're definitely going to hate you guys the more you resemble me. Well, so also with Christian nationalism. All the nations are Christ's inheritance. And you can say it's God's business to fulfill that. And I say, yes, amen, absolutely, and also, what's your point? You could say it's the same thing for evangelism, too. It's actually God's business. It's God who draws the unbeliever into a condition of belief, convicts them of sin, and all the rest. And so, therefore, don't be putting all this pressure on people to evangelize, to share the gospel, to tell one another about Jesus, to make disciples of all nations, to go and, oh, wait a second, Jesus commanded us explicitly to do that thing, to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Isn't it interesting, too? You have nations there. Make disciples of all nations. And what if sometimes a certain critical mass of Disciples in a nation are really wrestling with what kind of political engagement, if any, is appropriate. And you say, well, no political engagement is appropriate. And then they're going to say, well, then how am I loving my neighbor? How am I supposed to make decisions with the people on my block or in my city or in my state or in my country if I'm supposed to stay out of all of that? That's not what we're called to. In fact, quite the contrary. Paul writes to the church at Corinth at a certain point to have nothing to do with those who are sexually immoral. And then he explicitly clarifies, by this I don't mean those who are outside of the church, because then you wouldn't be able to be in the world. We're supposed to be in the world, not of the world, but you are supposed to be in the world. And oh, by the way, this is the same God we worship in the new covenant as Christians who sent the prophet Jeremiah to tell Israel during the Babylonian captivity, increase in the land and do not decrease. How can that be? How can it be that they are seeking the welfare of the city, Babylon, and its people for 70 years if God is not at all concerned with the welfare of Babylon? How can it be, for that matter, that God says God sends Jonah to Nineveh to preach repentance to Nineveh 
And Nineveh as a city repents. That's not political. That doesn't have political ramifications. I mean, maybe we would stop short of calling that a Christian city after they repent and they turn away from their sins. But here again, this comes right back to the question of how are we defining the thing? Is Matt Emerson the one who gets to define what this is, what it isn't? Does Stephen Wolf define it? Does the radical left or the secularists define what Christian nationalism is and isn't, whether you should be one or whether you shouldn't be one, whether it's compatible with you being a Christian. Are you even a Christian if you're a Christian nationalist? And of course, that's not precisely the question that Matt Emerson is asking here. He's not asking, can you be a Christian and a Christian nationalist? He's asking, can you be a Baptist and a Christian nationalist? And I understand as well, not everybody who is a part of or has grown up in a certain denomination necessarily is fluent, shall we say, in what their denomination believes, what their tradition holds to as a distinctive from others. So you can have Reformed Baptists who would disagree on some important points, maybe not essential points of doctrine, where we're going to decide, are we Christians or not based on these things? But can we fellowship together? Are we going to be part of the same church body locally, the same network of churches, the same denomination. A Reformed Baptist and a Presbyterian are going to part ways very often when it comes to baptism, as Emerson points out here. Pedo-baptism coming along with this idea of how the covenants work, that you can be born into the new covenant by having Christian parents, that's a major difference between Presbyterians on the one hand and Reformed Baptists on the other hand. But when it comes to a political theology, I understand that it makes a difference when we get into the details and even the tone and tenor of our political engagement, what our expectations are. So also, our eschatology can make a difference. Are you amill, pre-mill, post-mill? Any mill, that can make a big difference on what your expectations are for the church to be engaged in local politics, no doubt. Whether you are a Calvinist in your view of election and predestination, or you're an Arminian, can make a big difference. Whether you emphasize more the reading and study of scripture and the expositional preaching and teaching of the word of God, or you are, as the more charismatic Pentecostal types will say, led by the Spirit, and you're looking for a word from God directly, that can make a big difference in whether or how you engage politically. But here are some statements from Emerson's article in Nine Marks that really drive home to me that we're having the wrong discussion, we're having, we're having the wrong debate if this term, Christian nationalist, was initiated by those hostile to Christian engagement in politics. It wasn't initiated, this term, Christian nationalism, wasn't initiated by Stephen Wolf. He just seized on this criticism of Christians engaging in politics. But that doesn't mean that he's now copyrighted the term or that he 
primarily or exclusively defines what Christian nationalism is and isn't. And just because a lot of people are reading his book, that doesn't mean that he becomes the arbiter of what this thing is. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and I don't mean to be a Monday morning quarterback, but I think his book could have been more rightly titled A Case for Christian Nationalism or The Case for a Particular Expression of Christian Nationalism. Yet again, here are some quotes from Emerson's piece at Nine Marks that I would broadly agree with and also for those who are outside those who are the secularists, those who didn't grow up in the church, those who are of the left and they're progressive and they think the status quo is and always has been, it always should be ever more secularism. Emerson writes, every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and his truth. Amen. Amen. And also, most people would define that as Christian nationalism. It's only when you get very precise and, dare I say it, myopic, that you would say, oh, that's but that's not Christian nationalism. What Stephen Wolf wrote is Christian nationalism, and that's all it is and that's all it can be and that's all it ever will be. And so we should jettison the term because, well, I don't agree with him on this. I don't agree with him on that. I'm a credo Baptist. And I also, by the way, I may not be a Baptist in terms of attending or being a member of a Baptist church or denomination, but I am a credo Baptist. And yet I know how to differentiate what Stephen Wolf is arguing for that I agree with from what he's arguing for that I would push back on, I would disagree with. I am not for the establishment of an American church in the sense that England has the Anglican church or the Church of England. I'm not for that. I would stand side by side with somebody like Emerson in pushing back on the establishment of the Church of America, along those lines. But I would stand with a Doug Wilson, as I understand him to be arguing, when he says, we should want a Christian consensus. That's what we should be working towards. That's what we should be developing and building out in the way of a political theology as Christians in America. We should be broadly agreeing that Christians are the best caretakers of, the best stewards of, the human rights and civil liberties of Christians and non-Christians alike in the U.S., and insofar as we have a global influence around the world as well. Emerson also writes, quote, our political theology therefore appropriates Christ's kingdom as more important than our earthly kingdoms and chastens its expectations for earthly politics accordingly. We focus our energies on building up the primary sign of Christ's kingdom, the local church, but not to the exclusion of all life's areas, including politics. End quote. And I say, amen. Amen. I agree with that. And I think we should all agree with that. I agree with that. And again, not to belabor the point and not to be tedious and pedantic, but from the outside perspective, which is important here, and I would say more important than is 
being appreciated by many of the academic types, many of the black robe regiment in our day. From the outside perspective, what you're describing here is Christian nationalism. It is. And in fact, as a matter of fact, because we see Christ's kingdom as more important than our earthly kingdoms, we therefore subordinate our engagement in politics to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so we do the other thing that he was talking about in the quote before this one. We seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. And that also informs how we call for repentance. Brothers, sisters, that informs how we call for repentance. What are we calling Herod to repent of? Oh, but he's not a Christian. It doesn't matter. He should still be called to repentance. We're making disciples of all nations, recognizing that they are not de facto disciples. Making them disciples is an active thing. And no, I don't believe that that's just evangelism in the sense that we think of evangelism, passing out tracts, doing street preaching, let's say going the way of the master route where you're engaging people in conversation. So you think you're a good person. Do you think, have you ever lusted after a woman? Have you ever stolen anything? Even something small? You know, that's evangelism as we think of it. And there's a place for that. Don't get me wrong. I don't like the formulaic approach personally. But there's also the legacy of Augustine, where our apologetic is going to be much more robust. And I would say much more in keeping with the idea that we focus our energies on building up, yes, the local church, not to the exclusion of all life's other areas, including politics. So you build up the local church. And can I just say a word or two about speaking of kingdoms, the local church and the prioritization, the emphasis on investing in the local church. Can I just say a word or two about how there can be a danger of building up earthly kingdoms when pastors over large, well-financed local churches have, after a fashion set up, in many cases, little kingdoms for themselves. And so some, some layperson who's not seminary trained, who doesn't have his doctorate of divinity, he comes in and says, hey, I'm thinking about running for the legislature, or I'm thinking about running for city council, or I'm thinking about running for mayor. And if all of a sudden this layman would start making arguments for why that's imperative for the Christian to be salt in the community, to be light in the world, not losing savor, not hiding it under a bushel, if we can retreat too easily to, well, you need to be investing that energy into the local church, building up the local church. That is not necessarily free from moral hazard, spiritual hazard, where the building up of our own kingdoms on earth is concerned. And as a matter of fact, in some locales, we would have a healthier, safer local church if we were taking some of our energies and investing them into the local political scene or having a good theology of work a better theology of the authority of the father in the home, a better theology of the authority of a employer 
in the workplace, the authority of a Christian in politics in the civil sphere. These are not mutually exclusive. They're not contradictory. All three are distinct. They have their place. And ideally, they work in harmony in the home, in the local church, in the civil sphere. Another quote from Matt Emerson, despite these significant areas of conflict, there remains some common ground between Baptists and Christian nationalists, or more broadly, magisterial political theology. Early Baptists, and indeed many Baptists, throughout the first half of the 20th century believed that Christians should support the government's promotion of the good and punishment of evil in ways that reflected God's law. Contrary to some assumptions, Baptists of old are not automatically Libertarian, they affirmed that government could positively reflect God's law in the laws they enact. However, they also believed governments could and do err often egregiously, end quote. And here again, I say, amen. And all the more, rather than less reason, for Christians to be calling to repentance those who are in government. But we have to have some idea, our political theology has to have some idea of what turning away from sin and disobedience looks like. For instance, if we would say to the government or to an elected official in government, in particular, an elected official or a bureaucrat, if we would say to them, turn away from sin, we'd have to have both a positive vision and a negative vision in order to tell them to repent and to turn away. So an example from the New Testament would be Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man and a we little man was he. He overtaxed, and that was part of how he made his money. He charged more than what was necessary and then took the cream off the top. Classic corrupt bureaucrat tactic. We have lots of them today. We need to deal with them today. But when he comes to Jesus, Jesus doesn't just tell him to repent in the abstract. And he doesn't just say to Zacchaeus, oh, you believe in me? You're set. Now, just make sure you're at church every Sunday. Make sure you're baptized according to the creeds and you're set. And give some of that money. <laughs> give some of that money that you've been making above and beyond what is reasonable as a tax collector to the church and we'll redistribute it. No, no, no. Those you have defrauded, go and make them whole again. That's how you demonstrate repentance. Not just repent internally or feel really bad about it. Turn away from this fraudulence, taking more than is fair in the way of taxes. Stop oppressing the poor. Give back to the poor what you took that was excessive and follow me. So there's a turning away and there is a turning towards righteousness. And we as Christians have to have a political theology that knows what we are asking the non-believing, dead-in-their-trespasses person in governmental authority to turn away from, on the one hand, and turn towards in the way of righteousness, on the other hand, because governments can and do err often egregiously. For instance, if we see the governing authority in our country today rewarding those who do what is evil, we should call for repentance of that. And we say, stop rewarding bad behavior and start punishing it. That's your job. And on the other hand, if we see government in the United States of America in the 21st century punishing those who do uh, what is good, then we say, hey, 
Repent. Stop punishing those who are doing what is good. Turn and reward those who are doing what is good. That's what we call for. But we have to hold a balanced view here that doesn't just have a positive vision for what government could do. I don't think anybody is naive that government can err and often does and egregiously. But I say all the more rather than less that animates, that energizes, that informs how Christians are engaged, how Christians are active. And again, again, I'll say it again because it needs to be said. If we understand what outsiders mean when they say Christian nationalism, we have to recognize that what Matt Emerson is describing here is what the outside non-Christian, non-believing world sees as Christian nationalism in a nutshell. So to say, oh, you can't be a Christian nationalist is, I think, out of step with the history of Christians calling themselves Christians, no less for it having been a pejorative initially, a mocking title. I think also, too, that insofar as the broad consensus among American Christians is what we should want, we should want a broad consensus among American Christians that we are calling for repentance and we are calling for righteousness. We're calling those who are in governmental authority in the U.S. to righteousness and to recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's not contrary to evangelism. That is evangelism. That's you evangelizing to those who are in governing authority positions. Or what? You go out on the street and you're going to preach Jesus or you're going to hand out tracts, or you're going to call for repentance to only the poor, only those who are civilians, only those who are the voting public, but never the ones that are voted for, never the ones who are voted in, never the ones who are appointed, never the ones who are in positions of authority. God forbid. Don't they need the gospel as well? And if some of those, if many of those actually profess to be Christians— Don't they need to be reminded of what God has commanded? Don't they need to be reminded of what righteousness is according to God and what is unrighteousness? Don't they need to be also sometimes called to repentance and sometimes church disciplined? I would say yes. I would say absolutely, particularly if they are claiming to be Christians and then promoting abortion, promoting homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, promoting so-called gender-affirming care and so-called marriage equality legislation, only all the more if they're professing to be Christians and legislating in a satanic way, we should be calling them to repentance. Because what does that do to the testimony of the local church and of Christians in America? Lastly, one last quote, and then I got to run. Emerson writes, this brings us back to the question, Can a Baptist be a Christian nationalist? No, because Christian nationalism as a species of magisterial political theology is antithetical to a Baptist understanding of the covenants, end quote. This is the wrong question. It's the wrong question that's being asked. And some people who are lazy would prefer this question because they can say the big problem, the major problem is these Christian nationalists. And It's a way of currying favor with the zeitgeist, with the spirit of this age, 
with the world. It's a way of extending an olive branch. Yep. We'll take care of it. We'll, we'll get them out of here. Don't worry about it. We got this. Some who are lazy and greedy for unjust gain and selfish and ambitious would rather jump on the bandwagon of condemning Christian nationalism on the basis of a very precise gnat-like distinction and they swallow a camel. But let me just say, what it is that Matt Emerson affirms in the way of Christian political engagement, his positive vision for what Baptists should be pursuing, what they should have as a goal in the way of engagement in the civil sphere, is what most people think is Christian nationalism. And it's a good thing. Whatever you want to call it, slap whatever label you please. That vision has to be called something. And that vision is sound. And it's entirely in keeping with Old Testament and New Testament, Old Covenant and New Covenant, the whole counsel of God, the totality of the history of the church for the last 2,000 years. It's in keeping with what Augustine wrote. It's in keeping with what Luther wrote. It's in keeping with the likes of a C.S. Lewis. This is a broad consensus, and it's antithetical to the vision of the left, which is hostile to any expression of Christian faith or morals or ethics or truth in public life in a way that would be impactful. The other side of this political spectrum right now once Christians out once and for all, permanently. That's the bigger danger. That's the bigger threat than whether Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians agree about paedo-baptism. It's not a major concern that we're going to have the establishment of an American church as was the case in England. That's not a major concern. That's not a big threat right now. A big threat is woke Christianity taking over. That's a big threat. Drag shows in churches, that's a bigger threat. The normalization of pedophilia, that's a bigger threat. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. You can read the full article at ninemarks.org by Matt Emerson. Please do. It's a long one, but lots of food for thought there. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.